Well, happy rainy morning to you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Never seen so many umbrellas. If you were here last week, uh, you, you know this journey that we're in for these three weeks a little bit, and it's also overlapping with the journey that I'm on, that Arlene's on, and our family's on. Uh, most of you are aware, but if not, uh, we are in a time of grieving and rejoicing that my mom went home uh, to be with the Lord uh, early, first part of this month, January the 2nd. And I'm going to pick up where I left off last week, and I, uh, I showed you some photos of mom last week. I'm going to show them to you again today just because I can. And, but it's more than that. It's for you to get a glimpse of a giant of a woman, even though she was very small, and a woman that truly lived. And where I left off last week, the reason I'm, I'm, sh I'm showing these is not just for a family slideshow, but uh, the photo that I took at the end of the day of her grave, freshly decorated with flowers, is where we left off last week. With that question that we started addressing then, we're going to keep addressing it today. What does the gospel have to do with that scene? What difference does the gospel make in a moment like that? Arlene and I were totally alone in the cemetery, and I would ask that question. And a lot of people say, say, of course the gospel's relevant for that scene because the gospel enables there to be hope after the grave. True? Absolutely. But that's not the only relevance of the gospel in that moment. A lot of times people think the gospel, the good news about Jesus, is for in a linear way, uh, yeah, you trust him at some point along the way, but then it kicks in the moment that you head to the grave, and then you can know that uh, heaven and that life, and that's all true. But the gospel applies not just after the grave, but before it. And it's part of who we're becoming as His people, grappling with this. It's what Jesus was referring to in John 11, verse 25 and 26, when His buddy Lazarus had died. Very similar scene as this. Culturally, instead of it being under the, the ground, it was in a, in a tomb with a stone rolled over it like a cave. And one of Lazarus' sisters commented to Jesus about him not being there. And then in verse 25, John 11, Jesus said to her, Martha, I'm, I'm the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, now pay close attention to what he says. It's two sides of a coin. It's a beautiful coin. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? So what Jesus is saying beautifully poetically, brilliantly, powerfully, is that believing in me has applications both before and after your physical death. He's also revealing death and life is not just a matter of whether one's heart's beating and lungs are breathing. He says, the one who believes in me will live even though they die. So that definitely applied to my mom in that, in that moment. She wasn't there. She was more fully alive than any of us. But he, in verse 26, he says, whoever lives by believing in me will never die. So there's that living that takes place even before the grave, and that grave will not be our ultimate death. It had everything to do with Jesus's cosmic agenda. It was far more than just forgiveness of sins and getting us to heaven, but it was a restorative agenda. 
an agenda of, of, of bringing us back to life. What is the goal of the gospel? It's not just the hope of heaven. It's not just forgiveness of sins. The goal of the gospel was him to bring us to life. John 10, 10, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, Jesus said. But let me tell you why I've come. That they may have life. Have it to the full. That's not a happy clappy. That's not a self-improvement. That's not a positive mental attitude. That's a restoration of my humanity to the glory of God. He didn't come to make me religious. He didn't come to start a holiday. He came to make me alive and bring life back to the cosmos. And he says, I invite you to come alive. That's the power. Why I'm so excited about this season of our vision, being led by this vision of engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus. That's what the early church was about. That's why Irenaeus, the early church father, who was two generations, two disciples away from the apostle John himself, there's Polycarp and then Irenaeus, he said, the glory of God is man fully alive. This whole notion, show me your glory, show us your glory, that's a direct reference to, you know, show us the life of the gospel. May we live fully to your glory. It's a story that starts not, a lot of people, they reduce the gospel to a salvation thing to, it's just about the fall and our sin and redemption. So it's forgiveness of our sins and it's so much more starts in creation. What God said, it is good. We marred it with our rebellion saying we can be normal, fulfilled human beings without you, God. Then came the fall. Jesus comes for redemption, redemption for the purpose of restoration. And as he says in Matthew, the restoration of all things, the restoration of all things, what? back to as it was in creation, to the new heaven, the new earth. It's what the disciples were all about. They got it. John 20, 31, he says, let me tell you why I've written my gospel. I've written it for two reasons. One, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. We're calling that part A, orthodoxy. And that's so key, but it's not just doing the orthodoxy, not just getting the doctrine, the belief systems right and and yawning at it. That orthodoxy should leave to a vibrancy, he says. And also, secondly, part B, that by believing you may have life in his name. He's saying exactly what Jesus was telling Martha. He said, he who lives by believing in me. So this whole notion of vibrancy that comes as a result of the orthodoxy. It's not vibrancy instead of orthodoxy. It's not orthodoxy without vibrancy. It's both and. That's the gospel. So what's the vibrancy look like? We're going to spend a lot of time, starting at about a month, going through John's gospel and saying, okay, what is this notion of the life of gospel? Because right there he says, this is why I wrote my gospel. So let's read the gospel. Let's study it and digest it. But before we get there, we're taking three weeks to kind of set the stage, backdrop. Some of you have asked, can, give, can you give us a summary of what does it look like to be fully alive? And there's so many ways to go about it. There's so much more than what I'm talking about, but what I've done, tried to go through the scriptures, narrow it down to 10 characteristics. 10 characteristics, and the, uh, I'm giving these to you only in the order that's easy to remember in terms of each one starts with the letter of the alphabet, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J. So last week we looked at two. Today we're going to review those and look at four more. And next week we'll look at the last four. And you're being quizzed on these. There's electrical shock mechanisms in your seats. 
that are not wired up yet, but they will be next week. So if you get a wrong answer, but um, here we go. Look at you, you guys are ready to go. As I begin my day, as I end it, as we begin a year, as we end it, a month, what does it look like for us to be fully alive, living with a sense of awe? Living with a sense, a, a cad- walking to a cadence of all of life worship, a rhythm of noticing His beauty, His authorship. Psalm 27, verse 4 says, all the days of my life, I want to do something. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. That's not just church. The temple is not just church. It says, dwell in His creation all the days of my life, not just Sunday mornings. And here's what I'm doing. I'm living with a sense of awe, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple, all about the life that He's entrusted, all about His creation and all about His authorship. So each day living with a sense of in, in, in embrace of, his, of the mystery, of the beauty, of the wonder, and living with a sense of wonder. That's what it looks like to be fully alive. But also, engagement. Living with a sense of engagement. It's not about me. It's about me engaging others with the life of the gospel through outreach and service and acts of justice and compassion and evangelism and discipleship. Jesus says, you've got a mission, a great commission. Go, make disciples of all nations. Now, that's a strategy. It's not an end in itself. The end result is for him bringing the cosmos back to life. And the way for that to happen is through this evangelism and discipleship to take place. But it's engaging. Acts chapter 5, verse 20. The angel told the disciples after they were released from prison, go stand in the temple courts, he said. Tell all the people about this new life. Tell them about all of this new life. Engage with them. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 19. I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador. Ephesians 5, 2. Live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You know, be a light. Is St. Jose Maria Escriva says, don't let your life be sterile. Be useful. Blaze a trail. Shine forth with the light of your faith and your love. Take a look around you, Richard and Rebecca Stern, uh, Richard and Renee Stern said, look at the people around you. You just might be the only Jesus they will ever see. One of the reasons that my mom's dash was so significant, you know, the dash on a gravestone, there's the birth date and the, the date of death, and then there's that dash. And the reason that that death date was so significant for all of us is because of how significant the dash was. And one of the reasons her life was so significant is because of this. She engaged till she couldn't engage any longer. I mean, she would teach, meet, and disciple, serve. At the funeral, some people were sharing, one couple was sharing about how she got several couples together a few years ago. I mean, old age, she didn't slow down at all until she was just unable. But she had a study group, went through the Truth Project. 
focus on the family's video project about the truth crisis in our culture and getting into the work. So they went through it. At the end, she looked at each of these five couples. And she, you saw her face. One of the reasons I showed you her photos again. This sweet little classy southern lady, she looked at each other with a smile and said, you're, you two, you're going to start a group like this. You guys are going to start a group like this. You're going to start a group. Went, went around, and the person sharing said, you know what? And we all just said, yes, ma'am. <laughs> what was she doing? She was saying, engage. Guys, this is not just for us. It's not. When's the last time I invited someone to church, invited someone to a Bible study, and, and, and engaged in conversation? Engagement. Was I fully alive today? Did I give that life away? Did I demonstrate it? What's it look like to be fully alive? Not just living with a sense of awe or a sense of engagement, but brokenness is a part of being fully alive. Last time I checked, we're in a fallen world. And that fallen world is the reason that Jesus came. And for me to engage with the life of the gospel, I do so in the context of a fallen world. I've shown you the painting before, therefore we're not going to spend tons of time on it, but I bring it up because my mom mentioned it a few months ago. She loved the story of me seeing this painting in a museum in Russia by Nikolai Yeroshenko. The name of the painting is There is Life Everywhere. It's of some prisoners being shipped off during the, the Russian Revolution to Siberia to prison camps and the title there's life everywhere and I've explained to you before how looking at the influences behind his his painting and Leo Tolstoy short story what men live by looking at first John 3 14 which we'll talk about next week bottom line that life is not a there is a bright side to everything. That's not what that's saying. When he says there's life everywhere, he's referring to the life of the gospel, even in the midst of an awful situation like that. And my mom, she actually said that not feeling well at all one time, a number of months ago. She says, that painting, what's the name of it? And I said, there's life everywhere. And she says, there's life everywhere. And that story that we just read John 11, Jesus is about to raise Lazarus from the dead. This is Jesus. John 11, verse 35, Jesus wept. So let me ask you this, did he cease to be fully alive in that moment? I'm I'm not budging until I get an audible answer. No. You can be fully alive and weeping over the impact of the fall. We've had an awful reminder in our culture, even as recently as this week with lawmakers, and just turning from compassion and from God, making decisions. Our culture, it's fraying at its, its moral core, but there is the life of the gospel everywhere. There are those opportunities to honestly engage with the brokenness, But to engage with the brokenness in the context of knowing Jesus is overcome, it's a verse I've mentioned to you many times. It's a reason because so many people hijack the gospel. They turn it into a way of exempting ourselves from any difficulty. Verse 63, John 16, Jesus says, I've told you these things 
so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. You're going to have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Kintsugi, we, t- we looked at it all through Advent. That Japanese art of repairing a broken vase with golden glue becomes more beautiful and more valuable. Being fully alive is not trying to anesthetize ourselves against the brokenness or run from it, but we embrace it and submit to his agenda in the midst of it, his agenda of hope and of refining. If I take the kind of my normal, my natural inclination towards brokenness, I'll try to just kill the pain and push it aside and, and, and run from it, avoid it, and I become more and more bitter because I can't outrun uh, the fa- fallen world. And it's shrapnel is always getting embedded in me and I become more bitter. But if I, I turn to it with the hope of the gospel, all of a sudden what James talks about begins to happen. James chapter one, verse two, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials and brokenness and difficulty of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance and let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. It's a matter of saying, yes, the world is broken and being authentic, but the gospel is true and being authentic. And as a result, Psalm 51 verse 8, we learn to dance with our broken bones. Let the bones dance which you've broken. What's A stand for? That's good. I'm not going to ask you B, that's too recent. You'll come back to it. What does it look like to be fully alive? Depth. I live with a, a depth about me, a substance. I, looking through some photos and in mom's house, there was one that reminded me of a vacation home that with some friends, they had a vacation home, a cottage really, on a lake that I can remember, I don't know, I was first grade, second grade, somewhere in there. And my buddy and I went down to the shore and we found our moment. Nobody was watching, everybody was inside or gone. His older brother had a little sailboat, and I think it was called a sunfish. Is that those little sunfish? So let's do it. I mean, we know how to swim and everything. We know how to sail. We've seen him do it. So we start pushing that, you know, styrofoam and all that stuff and get the the mast and the sail. And as we're moving everything to the water, there was this triangle piece of plastic or light wood there. And I looked at it and I said, does this belong? He said, I have no idea what that is. So I said, all right, must be something else. What, what was it? It was the keel. The keel that goes down underneath the sailboat that stabilizes it. You don't see the keel, but it's there. And the reason you know the keel is there is because in the midst of the difficulty, you're stabilized. Well, we were not stabilized as soon as some difficulty came. And we proved it by 
taking an early bath that day. When a wind came along, because there was no keel, the little sailboat capsized. Being fully alive is living with a keel, deep roots in the Word of God, in the wisdom of God. I love the statement about Mary after the angel left her telling her what was about to happen. Luke chapter 2, verse 19. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Fully alive people treasure up and ponder. As T.S. Eliot, the poet, said, he said, we had the experience, but we missed the meaning. All of us go through experiences every day, but fully alive people are grappling with the meaning of those events. We don't have the answer to all of them, but we have the overall understanding of God's purpose and His agenda, and it's the rootedness of the Word. And we, we learn to think deeply. Richard Foster wrote in, at the beginning of his book, Celebration of Discipline, he starts it this way, he says, superficiality is the curse of our age. The desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people. People that go beneath the surface and don't swallow the the, the, the Kool-Aid of our culture that says the purpose of life is amusement. You've heard me say before, amusement. Muse means to think. Ah is the negation. Amusement is not thinking. That's okay every now and then to do amusement and take a break from thinking, but not when it's your overall lifestyle. People that are fully alive are thinking. They're musing. They're pondering. Psalm 1, verse 1, blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord. You know, this is my mom's Bible. It's one of them. I gave this one to her on Christmas Day, 1990. In her study, there are a number of, of Bibles. I've got a number of Bibles, but all of hers are worn, tattered, marked in. Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who meditates on his law day and night. The person is like a tree, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water, its roots going deep. Jeremiah 17 has a parallel passage I'm about the roots going deep down. The person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. You see what's happening there? There's the information of the Scriptures. But it's not just the information. A lot of people think, yeah, just read the Bible, learn the books of the Bible, learn some good doctrine, you're good to go. No, no, no. It's learning that, that information. But then comes the meditation, the pondering, the chewing. And we do that in the context of our story. Imagine another book right here being the story of my life. There are a lot of religious people. They look at this book, pay attention to this book, but they never connect this book with the story in which God is wanting to glorify Himself. Uh, they, they say, no, it, it, we, we're not about that, we're about this. And people notice that. Some people say, the church is irrelevant. And they start spending all their time on their stories and talking about their stories, but they don't look at the book. They don't look at the, the, the depth. 
It's, it's having in both hands the Scriptures and my story, and seeing how the Scriptures illuminate what's happening in my story, seeing how my, my story is played out in the great plot of Scripture. It's the information combined with meditation on the significance of it, then the application leading to transformation. That's all going on in Psalm 1. And fully alive people, they're like Jeremiah. They found God's words and they ate them and they became the joy and the delight of his heart. Not to enable them to become religiously uh, expert, but to learn to be fully human to the glory of God in the face of Christ. What's B stand for? Brokenness. What's D stand for? A? Fully alive people live with, this, with their hearts fully engaged. H stands for heart. I was illiterate when it comes to the heart for half my life. And then pouring into the scriptures and seeing the hundreds of references to the heart, realizing, man, I miss it. Because most of us are mind people. We, we like to think ideas and, or we're action people, but we're not we tend to be, we're not, we're not well, well-rounded, or others of us are emotion people, and we feel, but it's getting all of those together. Now, February, we're right on the cusp, right? February is just around the corner. In February are two very significant heart days. What's the first one? Valentine's Day. Oh, it just kind of warms the cockles of your heart to think about it, doesn't it? It's uh, if you got, if, if, I know you, you haven't gotten your Valentine's card for me yet, but there's plenty of time. What's the other one? Super Bowl Sunday. That's the other heart day. And in fact, biblically, Super Bowl Sunday is more of a heart day than Valentine's Day. Some of you are thinking, what in the world are you talking about? Okay, the, per, the, the team that wins Super Bowl, the Super Bowl, will play with the most heart. Meaning they're going to, <laughs> meaning they're going, <laughs> I'm going to refrain from comment. Uh, <laughs> that team will know a game plan, so there will be thought applied. They will be, they will be demonstrating their skill the best that day, and they'll be playing with passion. So there's emotion. It's all three, mind, execution, playing with heart. To live our lives with heart means we, we're thinking deeply. We're feeling authentically. We're acting intentionally. And we understand our heart is a treasure to be guarded. Proverbs 4.23, above all else. You know what that means? I think it means above all else. Guard your heart because it's the wellspring of life. The gospel is addressed to the heart. The gospel says engage. A lot of people think, well, to become a Christian, I have a, need to have a little emotional feeling here or there. Others think to become a Christian, you've got to make a decision. 
And other people say to become a Christian about the doctrine. Other people say to become a Christian, you've got to walk the aisle or raise your hand. You know what? It's so much more than any one of those. It involves mind. It involves will. It involves our, our, our emotions. Uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you profess and, and, and are saved. The heart is the, the hub of, of my mind, my emotions, my will, my life. Let me give you a quick list. One of these days we'll come back to it. My heart, your heart, is where I experience longing. It's where we discern and understand. I, I came up with all these just in looking at biblical references to the heart. Our heart is where we ponder and think. It's, by the way, that one I got from that passage I just read about Mary pondering these things in her heart. The heart's where we remember significant events. It's where our interaction with others is birthed. It's where we experience stress. It's where we cultivate intensity. It's where we determine our attitude. It's where we develop our motivation. It's where we develop courage. In fact, when our heart's not engaged, Ephesians 4.18, Paul says this. He talks about a group of people. He says, they were separated from the life. That's not heart beating lung. This is the life of the gospel, the life of God. They were separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Did I, was I fully alive today? Did I engage my heart? First Peter chapter 3.15, but in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Not just in your doctrinal intellectual understanding, not just in your Sunday morning habit, but in all of life. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. It's working for the Lord rather than for men. It's this past week, it's out of that Proverbs 4.23, I've told some of you, I came up with a phrase with my boys that I used, and I used it this week with Andrew. Uh, he did a family text and told us he was headed on a, he's a captain in, in Afghanistan, headed on a mission. We sometimes know, other times we don't know when he's going, and, he, and it, of course, doesn't tell us where he's going, he can't do that. Uh, but my response to him was eight letters, F-F-Y-H, fight for your heart, F-F-W-H, fight with your heart. Fight for your heart, fight with your heart. I've been telling him that since he was playing high school sports and his brothers. Somehow it took on a different significance when he was headed to some other place in Afghanistan. David had a heart towards God. What's B stand for? What's E stand for? A? D, H, I, <laughs> somebody said in the first service, I stands for I don't know. <laughs> Intimacy. Intimacy with God. For me to be fully alive as a human being according to what he originally 
patterned me for and created me for. In fact, this, all of these are simultaneous. This is, this is the foundation of the all. The, the, the one time Jesus defines eternal life is in John 17. And his high priestly prayer in Gethsemane says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that you're, this is the night before he, gave, he was to be crucified. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Eternal life is not heaven. It'll be experienced in heaven in an undiluted way, but eternal life is a present tense qualitative intimacy with the one who made me, and he made me for intimacy with him. I'm going to invite Danny and our worship team out, and we're going to spend some time unpacking this, this whole notion of, that's why God has you here today. I have here an archaeological artifact <laughs> called a telephone. I saw an article this past week about some folks in Japan have a phone booth, and it's not attached, the cord's not attached to anything, but uh, they, they just unpack their grief speaking to relatives who, who disappeared in the tsunami. And I thought, you know, that's, that's, it's, that's, it's beautiful, but then I move to the Scripture and to the invitation that God gives us to speak with Him. So if I said, this phone right here is wired to the ear of God, you could ask Him whatever you wanted, what would you ask Him for? Maybe it would be a, a job or something regarding health or loved one. Let's say you said, you know what? I think God knows what I need more than I know. I'd rather, instead of speak, just listen. God, what would you want me to have? And I know what he would say. John 17, 3 says it. He would say, my son, my daughter, my son, my daughter, I give you me. I most want you to have myself. So often, we miss the life of the gospel because religion becomes a doing and a thinking thing and not a being thing. Not being in relationship and in, in communion with Him. Psalm 131, verse 1 says, My heart is not proud, Lord, my eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I've calmed and quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I'm content. A weaned child is no longer nursing, therefore spending time with his or her mother, not just for what she can do for, for him or her, but to be with them. When's the last time you were with him not asking him for anything. Just letting him love on you. Just being with him. I'd really encourage you right now, don't be passive, be very active. And acknowledge the 
heartbeat of the life of the gospel. This invitation to know him and be known.